Please note that this episode discusses gender-based violence, sexual assault, and intimate partner violence. Hello and welcome to another episode of the McGill Journal of Law and Health's podcast, COVID Conversations. My name is Kat and I'm your host for today. And our guest is Dr. Annalise Trudell, who is the Manager of Education, Training and Research at ANOVA, a gender-based violence agency offering sexual and domestic counseling and shelter out of London, Ontario. She is also one of the primary researchers and writers of the report, Pandemic Meets Pandemic, Understanding the Impacts of COVID-19 on Gender-Based Violence Services and Survivors in Canada. This report collected insights from over 376 staff and volunteers working across Canada in the gender-based violence sector to better understand the impacts of COVID-19. COVID-19 has revealed the cracks in our social infrastructure that, together with the pandemic, have deepened pre-existing social inequalities in our society. One sector and group in particular have been severely impacted by this, the gender-based violence sector and those experiencing gender-based violence. At the start of the pandemic, when governments mandated people to stay in their homes to keep everyone safe from the virus, gender-based violence advocates raised alarms that this would increase domestic violence in the home. Broadly, this report illustrated that many of the calls for alarm rang true. The pandemic resulted in an increase in the severity and prevalence of violence, caused additional stress on an already stretched and underfunded sector, and raised significant concerns about the capacity to deal with the violence in the community in the future. Today, Dr. Trudell and I are going to share her insights about the findings from the report and what we can expect going forward as we navigate the second wave of COVID-19 in Canada. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Trudell. Happy to be here. So we'll get started by talking about the findings from the report. So one of the most startling findings that struck me was that 82% of workers who noticed a change in gender-based violence saw an increase in both the prevalence and severity of violence. Um, Can you speak a little bit about what these changes look like and what are some of the reasons you think the pandemic is having such a significant impact on levels of violence? So one of the ways that um, this has been really clear at my agency is of the number of calls that we get on our crisis and support line, while the number might not have increased drastically, which is something we were anticipating, the calls that do come in are much more crisis-based. So the number of calls that qualify as being crisis that is imminent are much higher. And so that can be things like we're actually dealing with a scenario where it could be a potential domestic homicide and we need to address this now. This could be escalated forms of violence. So the research tells us that uh, acts such as strangulation are really sort of at the heightened end of what constitutes physical violence to the point where we take really clear note of that because of the possible domestic homicide. So when we're talking about severity, that's the scale we're talking. We're not sort of measuring emotional impact in a lot of ways. Um, it really is quite life or death in a, in a lot of sense. Prevalence, one of the things that we noted at the beginning of the pandemic was that all of the factors were in place from over a decade of coroner inquest reports for us to think that this would lead to an increase in intimate partner violence or gender-based violence writ large. So things like social isolation, job loss, income loss, um, mental health stresses and pressures. And so it was sort of a perfect storm of this, but a lot of us wondered, would it actually lead to increase in sort of service use, which is the most commonly used metric to measure gender-based violence right now, unfortunately. And you can envision all the problems of doing that. But and, and realistically across the province we, or the country, we haven't actually seen a huge increase in a lot of our services. 
because social uh, distancing has actually meant that a lot of people are staying home in the place that is the least safe for them. And so being able to reach out to services is just not feasible. So we haven't actually seen, let's say, a doubling in our crisis calls for a lot of agencies, but we've seen it in other telltale metrics across the board. Okay, that makes sense. That's obviously very concerning. Are there some ways that different social distancing laws or measures are obviously impacting it through the stay-at-home orders, but are there ways that these can be changed in order to ensure that there's not as much severity in the violence that is happening? Or are there any key strategies um, that people in the sector are thinking about and how they can respond to these increases in the severity of the violence? That's a really big question. So I'm going to start on an individual level. When we, I know myself, I will often sort of look on social media and see folks who are gathering and judge them and being like, oh, look at all the ways in which I'm not getting to do that because I'm taking the health recommendations to heart and those people are just being cuckoo over there. And I think it's really important for us to have a pause moment on an individual level sometimes when we jump to a quick judgment of others, which comes from a place of grieving the losses that we've had. But when we jump to that, we often don't know the full sort of story behind that. So many of the women, for example, that have come into our shelter during COVID have not quote-unquote abided by the strictest of health recommendations in some ways. And that when you can envision sort of the need for social support as a form of healing, the need to be connected to something when everything else in your life has been lost, your job, your home, your sense of self-worth, And so you're going out and you're still meeting with lots of family members and your kids are still participating in particular things. I think it's really important for us to know that sort of health recommendations are not across the board and we need to be really reflective of the privilege that it is to be able to do those health recommendations, to be able to have our homes be a safe place and be able to stay in those and work from home. And just in a lot of ways, that is not true for folks experiencing gender-based violence. So step one on an individual level, how we even interpret the policies and recommendations. Step two, a lot of us in our service provisioning, so let's say shelters, have had to do some crazy backbending to make these spaces um, work for the health recommendations. So a lot of shelters across the country are using alternative housing models like hotels and motels to house some folks, but not all folks, because you can imagine they're not the same as a shelter in terms of security. And sort of trying to also support her while she's in a hotel by sort of providing the mental health supports and all and food being brought there. It is just been a lot and what it's actually led to is a reflection on how we build our shelters our shelters are built most of our shelters are built on a model that is sort of from the 70s and 80s that is like a dorm room style if you're familiar with them more of an academic housing space and so people share washrooms it but the added part of this for shelters is it's a bit jail-like it's a double door entry it's very dark and dreary and they don't have to be built that way we can invest dollars where these spaces feel healing, where they also have enough distance in them to adopt to future potential pandemics because there's lots of research showing that this could be something we face. And so it's been a real opportunity moment to think about why are we sort of dragging at the bottom of the barrel in how we do design our services and let's think a little bit out of the box and more creatively invest some dollars into that. So those are the two things that come to mind and your very large question that could probably address lots of other policy areas as well. 
Yeah, no, I think those are really great responses. And I think they really speak to um, in the first wave, we saw that it was just shut down. We didn't know what this virus was. We didn't know how long it was going to be lasting. And now that we're kind of entering the second wave in many cities and municipalities across Canada, we're seeing a more measured approach. So I'm currently based in Montreal. Um, we are in the red zone right now, but we're seeing that that's not necessarily the case depending on how much coronavirus we're seeing in different regions and what the risk is. So as people working in the gender-based violence sector, are there any approaches that you folks would consider with respect to what levels should public health officials be going into? Is it something that is helpful, I guess is what I'm trying to get at, for the gender-based violence sector to be taking, or rather for the public health sector to be taking a measured approach in order for people who may be at risk of experiencing violence to be able to get out and experience social connection and social supports? Um, or is it better to really be focusing primarily on the health concerns that we saw that were really, really prevalent in the first wave? That's tough. And it's sort of framing it as mutually exclusive. And I, I don't blame you for that. Um, in some ways, they are. If you're asking people to shelter in place, quote unquote, and stay home, and home is not safe, what do we do with that? However, I don't, we, we're seeing from some of the race-based data and the social economic data that the people being hardest hit are those who are racialized in lower social economic spaces. And um, that actually intersects in a lot of ways with those who experience sexual violence and, and gender-based violence more broadly. Those populations are much more represented. And so I think we need to sort of intersect the two ways of thinking, not have one or the other win out in this sort of how this paradigm shift's been set up. I think equipping folks with the skills that would be needed and the sort of financing that would be needed to be able to stay distant from others is really where the problem lies. And can we go that upstream or not? So social housing spaces in core cities, it is just unjust to require that people stay in those with five children and sort of having to use, wait 20 minutes in line to get in the elevator to go down twice a day. It's just not feasible. So I think we need to sort of stop juxtaposing it as though these folks are bad people and that as though they also don't have any desire to abide by health recommendations and they're just sort of lazy because that's fundamentally not true, but they don't have the skills and the resources that a lot of us that have a lot of privilege do to maintain those distances. So I don't, I don't want to say that the health recommendations and the zoning in different areas are sort of opposed to a gender-based violence sort of healing perspective. I don't think that's fair, but I think what causes folks an inability to have their needs met, be that safety and security, be that not getting COVID because they can implement them, is much more about sort of all the structural social determinants of health and all the other things that we know. And so those need to be integrated as part of a COVID approach. That makes a lot of sense. And I think speaks a little bit to my next question that talks about the exacerbations of the systemic inequalities that we're seeing throughout COVID. And as you mentioned, these are contributed to increases in gender-based violence. They're really laying bare what we've known for a long time about structural inequality that has been left unaddressed. And now we are seeing the really devastating impacts of that now that we're in an emergency setting um, in Canada and in North America. One of the things that has struck out to me throughout the pandemic has been that populations that are the most vulnerable, and this has been true across North America, and I know that there's been um, studies both in Montreal and Toronto as well, that is showing that Black people, people with low income, um, those experiencing housing precarity, as you spoke to, and frontline healthcare workers, which oftentimes are predominantly women who are the most at risk of gender-based violence, are disproportionately contracting the coronavirus. So are you able to speak to a little bit like why is the pandemic 
deepening some of these inequalities, um, or maybe more specific to your work, how is this impacting gender-based violence and what can be done to address these factors in the short term as we're continuing to navigate the challenges related to the pandemic? One of the ways that it helps in my mind to visualize it is though the system was just like at the top, top, top of a cup filled with water. And any drop added to that would make things just overflow. It would make it too much. The system could no longer hold it all together and the water would splash out. And COVID did that. So the system arguably was barely holding it together in terms of for these particular populations. For the survivors, many of our agencies, 20 to 30% of their budget lines yearly is done by fundraise dollars. And yet right at the get-go of COVID, they were considered an essential service required to stay open and meet those needs because we realized in society it couldn't function without having shelters for women and kids. And yet we're not funded as an essential service. So that's an example to me of we're barely holding it together. We need that 20 to 30% fundraise dollars. And that's based on like the best years of folks having a good income and no massive economic challenge. And the instant something goes off, oh, we're overflowing. This is not going to work anymore. And so I think COVID has just done that. It's just been a very massive drop of water in this cup. And so there's so many ways in which we are noticing that our system was actually not working before now. And what other crisis could show in that light? So there could be a natural disaster crisis, climate change being sort of at the forefront of my mind in the coming decades. What is that going to show us? And what can COVID be an opportunity to help us prep for those other moments because we need to restructure this differently. Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with you with respect to that. In response to this, the report calls for intersectional systemic approaches that address these social and, um, and economic root causes of both gender-based violence, but also, as you mentioned, um, this is systemic underfunding of this sector. So what are some concrete strategies that whether it's politicians or policymakers in the short term can respond to this as we're entering the second wave. Obviously, we saw that um, gender-based violence shelters were able to pull through to support survivors, but it was not easy. And also in the long term to ensure that whether we have a natural disaster or another pandemic in the decades to come, um, how can we ensure that we are more prepared to support those that are really at the risk of gender-based violence across our society? So I hate when I'm listening to a webinar or a podcast and someone says, I need more funding. And I'm like, I roll because don't we all say that? And I'm about to say that. One of the clear things that came out of this report was that we need more funding. However, I think that there's some nuance to that. Here's what it is. We've actually many provinces and federally received dollars that are specifically linked to GBV as a sector around COVID. So they're one-off funding moments and they've really helped cover costs that are related to COVID. So not exclusively across the country, but hugely, we've all seen some amount of increase in funding as a one-off. And that's covered things like using hotels or motels as alternative housing for folks if shelters are not safe in terms of health recommendations. That's been amazing. And it's been really clear to me that this was identified by most governments, not all, as a priority area. It was recognized as an essential service and it was treated as such in those ways moving forward at the onset of COVID. The problem with this is that it's one-off. And so, okay, we've now recognized that it's an essential service. We funded it as such during COVID. We've given it due sort of attention, but moving forward, we need to close the gap of fundraise dollars. And so if we think of these as essential services, as we do say the health sector and all the different myriad ways the health sector is involved in this, there are obviously fundraise dollars in the health sector, but it's a much smaller percentage. And so we need to work towards that and fund it as such. 
that's a big pie in the sky thing. That's for a lot of us to create the tools. And sort of one of the, the outcomes of this report is that we're going about creating a tool, working with a couple economists um, and accountants to look at how, what formula can we do so that we would know in five years from now, if you don't increase our baseline funding, here's how many survivors will not be served. And we have the ability to calculate that. And so we need to leverage that more effectively. However, on an individual level for folks listening to this, I really think it's important to realize that in your own circles, this is happening and you can be part of that solution. And so this isn't sort of an other person's problem. We know that one in two Canadian women will experience violence in the course of her life. And in one snapshot moment in time in April, Stats Canada did a survey, representative survey in the country, and one in 10 women were afraid of violence in their home in that moment. So you know somebody. You know somebody who's experiencing whether you want to call it violence or they want to call it violence, perhaps it's more comfortable and sort of recognized as unhealthy relationship or whatever that language fits. But either way, there's something in your gut that tells you it's not great, it's not right. And so I think we've done a lot of work um, around how can we capacity build you to help that person. And so checking in with folks, especially around social isolation and distancing right now, I know that I'm sort of more distance from my family than I've probably ever been. And that's shitty. And how can we still check in with folks and say, hey, how is your family handling all the health recommendations? What's going on for you and your partner right now? Just allowing a couple openers so at least you're there. And a few of the don'ts that I often point out to folks, in no way should you ever encourage somebody to leave a relationship. So say you find out that something quite violent is happening in the home and it, for you it's just not right. This person doesn't deserve this. The moment of leaving is actually the most dangerous in a relationship. And so for me, any sense of bias towards leaving will either shut her down and she won't want to talk to you, or it could cause a really, a really potentially violent situation. And so connecting with your local crisis and support lines, the specific gender-based violence ones in, in the sort of region that you're in, not just the mental health ones, those are great awesome, but they're not trained in sort of the safety planning and risk assessment in the same way. So know those numbers, provide that to somebody that you know, do that reaching out, be part of sort of the community of care that we can create. That's great advice for somebody listening. Thank you for sharing that. One of the other things that um, really stood out to me from the report was how we were seeing people who are experiencing homelessness, newcomer women, essentially any person that is experiencing systemic oppression in another facet is more vulnerable to gender-based violence. Some of the things I was thinking about is the importance of funding, obviously the gender-based violence sector, but also housing, um, closing the gap in economic inequality. Are there other strategies that you think, think you could be calling on to policymakers to ensure that those systemic factors that are contributing to gender-based violence are also considered going forward so we don't find ourselves um, in this crisis situation when we experience an external event, be it natural disaster or another pandemic, as you mentioned, because they, will, they are inevitable throughout the course of our lives in some way or another. Well, they're all interconnected. So you're, you're on the right track. I think it can get a little overwhelming at a certain point when I'm like, okay, well, let's address racism. Let's address homophobia. Let's address sort of classism. Let's address ableism. Let's do all of them because that will lead to less violence. And, and yet it's true. They're all interconnected. Those populations are all overrepresented. And violence also leads to those issues. So in the course of sort of having your needs met after having experienced violence, you may or may not experience classism because you've lost your income. You might experience racism in terms of the services you're getting. And so they, they just compound each other. So I think for me, being aware of that, being aware of how they're intersectionally connected, noticing that I need to be, while I'm working in my stream, I need to be connecting and supporting these other sectors and sort of lending my voice to those. But for me, what works 
is in terms of not getting overwhelmed by trying to address everything at once, really thinking about what is your passion, where can you contribute, focusing there and reminding yourself, of course, they're always connected, but not trying to do it all because that won't work. Thank you so much, Dr. Trudell. Is there anything else that you would like to add um, from your insights from the report to share with our viewers? I think for a lot of people, it's really interesting to know from the report what happened in terms of violence and survivors, but I just want to give a gentle plug to the staff and volunteers of the sector. They had to do some ridiculous things to make this all work. And so there's some really powerful quotes that stuck with me after having read through 376 respondents and all of their wisdom and things even sort of, I know a lot of us work from home. I work from home now, but it's not the same as offering sexual assault counseling from your living room with your toddler in the other room and having to never have the separation. One person described it as sort of my walls have been slimed with rape all around me. And I just want to sort of give a massive shout out to folks working in the sector at the front line in particular, because whether it was from home, whether it was showing up at the front line of a shelter when PPE wasn't always available right at the beginning, and just unsure what transmission even looked like at the beginning. And these are some amazing humans and they deserve some credit. Thank you so much. And thank you so much to all of the frontline workers on doing this work on that note. While social isolation is contributing to an increase in the severity of violence experienced across Canada, it's clear that there are no quick solutions. COVID-19 requires a level of vigilance on the part of all of us and public health officials, but being able to follow these directives is a privilege that is compounded by consequence, socioeconomic status, race and gender, among other factors. Service providers from the report mentioned that returning to normal is not good enough. In a post-pandemic setting, we have to ensure that gender-based violence services are funded sustainably and as the essential service providers that they are. While we continue to navigate the pandemic in the months to come, we need to ensure that public health policies and regulations are matched with funding in order for sexual assault service providers to be able to adapt their services to ensure that those in need have a safe place to go, both from abuse and from COVID-19. Thank you so much for joining in on this episode of the McGill Journal of Law and Health's podcast series, COVID Conversations. Mm -hmm.